Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, I want to talk about tariffs as the first item today. And I want to talk about the history of tariffs a little bit, to put it in context, and to explain why tariffs are not great for supply chains. So, let's get started. Well, historically, tariffs were supposed to be used as a source of revenue for governments, but they're now supposedly mainly to protect domestic industries from foreign competition. They do this by increasing the price of imported goods, and the argument is that they persuade consumers to purchase domestic products instead. Well, all very well, isn't it? But how do you persuade consumers to purchase goods made locally in a country when that country doesn't make those goods and the best goods come from elsewhere? It's not a very rational argument, is it? It's a form of protectionism, and protectionism isn't good for anybody. It causes lots of friction in supply chains. It creates bureaucracy, paperwork, customs. And if you want to know more about it, go and read the government website in the UK about Brexit, because they've introduced lots of friction. Arguments to support the introduction of tariffs could be to protect nascent industries, those new industries that you're trying to cultivate inside a country, which would otherwise suffer from imported goods and not allow that particular industry to develop when it's of strategic interest to the country, to strengthen a national defence programme, to support domestic employment, to combat other countries' aggressive trade policies, or to protect the environment. Now, those all seem reasonable things to do, but what you must remember is that tariffs distort the market. And if distorting the market is a good thing, because it's seen as having a positive effect, then there's not a lot of evidence for that over the history of the introduction of tariffs. It does appear to be a government regulation to generate revenue, and it does seem a trade bargaining coin when you're trying to persuade other countries to accept your goods. And most tariffs and quotas are introduced as a defensive mechanism to protect an economy. As far as supply chains go, they really are an inhibitor, a disruptor. Countries sign all kinds of trade agreements, either bilaterally, that's country against country, or multilaterally with many countries. And when they sign those trade agreements, they're usually trying to eliminate tariffs between the two countries if it's a bilateral agreement, making the trade agreement. Or in the case of multilateral trade deals with all the countries that are party to that trade deal. So that's essentially what governments try to do when they negotiate free trade agreements. Tariffs, of course, have been in the news for the past couple of years with ex-President Trump's notorious tariffs against a number of countries, including his trade war with China. People buy goods from overseas, often because they're cheaper, lower priced, they may be of better quality than they can get in their own country, or it may be because goods are unavailable in their own country. So it's a cost issue, a quality issue, or an availability issue. And that's why people trade. And of course, international trade is beneficial to the countries that trade. 
As David Ricardo said when he was talking about the benefits of international trade in the 19th century. Countries seek to impose tariffs to make imported goods less attractive. If they can force people to substitute the imported good with a home-produced good, and here you can think about Trump's policy, America first, get the American goods, don't buy foreign. Or you can think about, in previous times, made in Britain, by British. All those kinds of campaigns are designed to push people to purchase domestic products in preference to any imported goods. But of course, that may not suit the purchaser for the reasons we've stated. might not be of the right quality, it might not come in at the right price point, or availability might be difficult, so you've got to wait. Tariffs, of course, can harm businesses that import goods. They can, of course, cause diplomatic issues with other countries, like a trade war, where there's a tit-for-tat exchange of tariffs. If you put 20% on steel, we'll do the same to some of your products. So they try to harm each other. So it's not about cooperation. This is about protection, trying to protect an economy against external economies. And it doesn't benefit consumers. And it doesn't really, in the long run, benefit governments that try to impose penal tariffs. So I think if you look at the history, most tariffs do more harm than good. And I'm going to take a little bit of time just to explore the history. And I'm going to take the example of Britain in the the Industrial Revolution and how tariffs have impacted the British economy. And the alternative to tariffs, of course, is to push for some kind of free trade agreement. When Adam Smith published his influential book, The First About Political Economy, Britain had an empire that stretched around the globe, an empire that was protected by favourable trade policies to the benefits of the East India Trading Company, established in 1601. There was much interest from France, under Napoleon, and from Prussia in Smith's ideas. The system of market regulation based on tariffs and quotas was known as mercantilism. Governments thought that they could regulate trade to their benefit while simultaneously deriving income from taxes. The system developed a complicated, elaborate structure of customs duties on imports and exports. What these taxes actually did was create monopolies for certain interested parties, particularly the British East India Company. At the time Smith was attacking the mercantilist policies, there was a dispute brewing in the American colonies over tea trade and other commodities. A minister of the Crown with responsibility for the 13 colonies in America wanted to tax tea and enforce regulations on a variety of commodities to the letter of the law so that Britain could make them pay taxes to support the cost of their own defence. These enforced regulations were unenforceable at a distance of 3,000 miles and the states had little ability to regulate them in any ways demanded by the British. They didn't have an established bureaucracy like the British Civil Service to do the bidding. Earlier in the 18th century, the British government had implemented a range of taxes on the cotton trade which woolen manufacturers promoted to protect their own interest in the textile trade. Arguments grew louder after the publication of Smith's Wealth of Nations, and free trade became the mantra, laissez-faire, let it alone. Businesses argued that these were not matters for the state to concern itself with. Mercantilism was abandoned, and William Pitt the Younger was an outspoken advocate 
and adopted the policy when he became Prime Minister in 1783. Progress was temporarily interrupted by the French War with Napoleon's army, by which time Britain had amassed a large national debt to fund the war. Pitt, of course, introduced income tax to pay for it in 1799, a temporary tax that's still in force today. Trade regulation continued until William Huskisson became President of the Board of Trade under Pitt in 1823. After 1815, British trade expanded significantly. It had trade with Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, the Cape of Good Hope, Trinidad, Australia, India, and even the Spanish colonies in the south of the United States. Reduction of tariffs after the 1820s, when Huskisson took office, were important to establish free trade. Barriers were removed from many textiles, wool, cotton, silk, and the metal industries also benefited. So this gave a good spur to industry in Britain. Trade was carried in British ships, and the ships were built, you've guessed it, in Britain. Robert Peel, William Gladstone, and Richard Cobden followed in the tradition of free trade. And it was William Gladstone who, for all practical purposes, completed free trade policies when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Gladstone was the son of a Liverpool merchant and well-versed in the benefits of free trade. All tariffs were removed from imported cottons, soap, and other products by Gladstone, and he halved the tariffs on fruit and dairy products. Free trade would not again be challenged until the early 20th century by an unlikely candidate, Joseph Chamberlain. The move was made when Chamberlain was colonial secretary and the Boer Wars took place between Britain and South Africa. Obviously, money was needed to pay for these wars. Chamberlain was also keen to emphasise the unity of empire and give benefits to those who were members of the British Empire. And one way to do this would be, of course, to impose tariffs on those outside the empire while removing them from those within. Hmm, sounds familiar. Tariffs act like any tax. They push prices up for the consumer or for the customer. Just like a sales tax adds cost for the consumer, such as a value-added tax or any sales tax which is ad valorem by value, duties act in the same way. And so you can pay more for the goods simply because there's a tariff. Alongside tariffs, governments often use quota as a means to restrict the volume of goods coming into any country. And so they will allow some imports of an item up to a specific number, a quota, and then beyond that, they will restrict the importation. And of course, businesses have found ways to overcome these disadvantages from tariffs and quotas over many years. I can remember instances under the quota system applied to the clothing industry being subverted by manufacturers in certain countries by them setting up overseas operations where they could access quota to supply the goods. So in other words, if your quota was restricted in one country, move your operation to another country if you're big enough or if you're a global business and use the quota in that country. And so that's how all kinds of businesses can overcome a quota system if they're big and global. So they're often worse than useless, really. The other thing that quotas and tariffs do, of course, is they create a healthy 
industry in smuggling. And we've seen that over the period during which tariffs and quotas have been introduced. All kinds of smuggling takes place to avoid the taxes. Economists agree that taxes can harm businesses that import goods, they can hurt exporters, and they often result in some kind of retaliatory action by another government. Most economists would broadly disapprove of tariffs. It doesn't really improve the overall welfare of any nation-state, and certainly it's likely to impact global trade in a negative way. Small businesses can be seriously damaged by tariffs. They don't have the means to overcome the situation they find themselves in when tariffs are imposed. They can't avoid them. They have to pay them. They're not big enough. They're not global to simply move things around. And they have fewer resources to do so. And they don't have much leverage with suppliers or for that matter with buyers. Tariffs are said to possibly increase domestic manufacturing if it can be proved that it can lower the domestic product price against an imported item can gain a comparative advantage. One of the best arguments for this particular benefit might be where one country has a great surplus of product, say a surplus of steel, and decides to dump that steel or to dump oil or a chemical on the world market because they have too much of it and they just want to get rid of it at any price. So they'll end up lowering the price just to dispose of the items. But really, that's short-termism. You might ask the question, how do tariffs affect high street businesses like retailers? Well, badly usually, because it imposes cost on them if they have to buy supplies from overseas to stock their store and tariffs are imposed on those overseas products. They either have to change a supplier to a domestic supplier, which might not have the range of products that they wish to buy, or they might not be supplying them at the right sort of price, so it can impact on the profitability that the retailers can uh, achieve. And customers vote with their feet. If they can't buy the stuff in the retail store, they might end up trying to buy it themselves from other retailers or other suppliers overseas, even though there are tariffs. The best argument for a tariff is probably to protect a nascent industry or a small industrial sector that's growing, a growing part of an economy, and you wish to have those skills in the domestic economy. So, for example, if you wanted to impose tariffs on aircraft or car manufacture, vehicle manufacture, or on the development of specific IT equipment, cutting-edge technology, then that might be a reasonable thing to do. But again, you can only do that for so long. You can only claim that you need to do that for a short period of time. You can't protect an industry forever. In the end, those industries have to stand up in competition against competitors in the world market. And if they can't, it's not going to be supported by governments forever. In the main, I think free trade between nations is a better route to take rather than protectionism and let the merits of the product or the service provided stand or fall by the value it offers to the purchaser. And rather than protect an industry if it's failing or it can't achieve the necessary standard, divert those scarce resources into products and services that can. And so the market, in a way, will determine where those resources are applied effectively. So there might be some short-term pain, but you'll get long-term gain. 
I think that's the argument in that case. The free trade movement set the agenda for economic growth, and through it Britain prospered until Chamberlain began to revive interest in tariffs at the start of the wars with South Africa in the first decade of the 20th century. In 1944, the Bretton Woods Agreement set out to establish a complex system to manage international trade through a general agreement on tariffs and trade known as GATT. GATT was the only multilateral instrument governing international trade from 1946 until the World Trade Organization was established on the 1st of January 1995. The WTO manages a complex system of trade regulation, mainly through tariffs and quotas, initially with 123 countries. There are 195 countries in the world today, and of those, 164 are said to be members of the World Trade Organization, according to records from the WTO at the 31st of December 2020. This despite the fact that most economists think that tariffs do more harm than good. Supply chains work best when there's no friction. Tariffs cause friction through customs checks, bureaucracy and additional cost, added to what otherwise would be a simple commercial trade. Supply chains have to establish systems to cope with this. When trade agreements change, they cause disruption, and there are inevitably winners and losers in the process. When it comes to trade wars, they're really quite common. The United States and China have been said to be in a trade war since... Ex-President Trump introduced his tariffs, which we've mentioned. The US raised tariffs on imported steel and aluminum aluminium in 2018, upsetting Canada and Mexico in the process. But they had to drop them about a year or less later in May 2019. For a businessman, Trump wasn't keen on free trade agreements. He didn't like the North American Free Trade Agreement and proposed a Trans-Pacific Partnership. But whatever comes out of the treaties, tariffs do more harm than good. The essential thing to recognise as far as supply chains go and creating supply chain advantage, when governments introduce tariffs, they usually distort the market in some way, they create some friction, they add layers of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy means cost. The tariffs mean cost. Businesses end up in a worse position than they were before the tariff. And you might get some really good businesses that now are unable to compete as a result of the distortion caused by the tariff in the market price. So for supply chains, tariffs aren't good. For consumers, tariffs aren't good. And actually, for governments, tariffs aren't good either in the short or long run. They can be very damaging. So I think I agree with Adam Smith, David Ricardo, lots of other economists, and also with the founding fathers of the United States who protested against that British government in 1776 when they imposed tariffs on them. The WTO performs a useful function when trade disputes break out. They are the body responsible for settling such disputes. But the problem since the COVID-19 pandemic is that the appeals process has been under severe strain because they haven't been able to meet and thrash out agreements as they would normally do. There are, of course, procedural and substantial concerns from the United States to be addressed. Various 
administrations have shared concerns, even if they, of course, haven't sided with the tactics of the ex-president Donald Trump, who basically said that the WTO should be abolished. The WTO is going to have to deal more effectively with China's trade policies and practices, including how to better handle state-owned enterprises and industrial subsidies. Addressing the issue of subsidies and hidden state subsidies, I suppose, in many cases, is a tricky thing to tackle. But reforms are necessary if the WTO is to be an effective governing instrument for world trade. Essentially, I think they think that the various rules established are not fit for purpose for a 21st century trade arrangement. So the WTO isn't oblivious to the criticism it receives in relation to the underlying frictions caused between major trading partners that need to be addressed. Of course, these trade negotiations are highly political, but they do impact how nations trade with each other, and of course, at the micro level, how supply chains actually work. These are the people in the WTO who are making the rules for trade. But the managing a system which is complex in its arrangements and it has to deal with the policies, priorities and practices of the 164 countries who are members. In 2020, President Trump was highly critical of the WTO with regard to the China trade war. The WTO said that the US breached global trading rules by imposing levies on more than $200 billion worth of Chinese goods, sparking a trade war with Beijing back in 2018. In 2019, the Trump administration took a hardline position on international trade with the WTO, and it was highly critical of the WTO, and particularly any appeals processes. The US government called for major structural changes at the WTO as a consequence of the Trump administration's claims. This overlooks the fact that the WTO has clearly provided benefits to the United States during its history. I think the clear message from the evidence with regard to tariffs and quotas is that it's much better to work hard to achieve cooperative strategies that work effectively in the short term, the medium term and the long term and achieve the objectives that you want to achieve without having to resort to tariffs and quotas that add friction to supply chains. So, hope you've enjoyed the episode. I'll see you next time when I'll be back with a regular edition of the Chain Reaction Podcast. Until then, bye for now. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Chain Reaction Podcast. And if you have, tell your colleagues and tell your friends about the Chain Reaction Podcast and let them hear it too. Don't keep this secret to yourself. Bye for now. I'll see you in the next episode. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast. 
Written, presented and produced by Tony Hines.